Welcome to the Law Matters Podcast. I'm Catherine Henry of Catherine Henry Lawyers, and in this episode, we're going to look at laws affecting transgender, transsexual and intersex people. I'm going to be joined by someone who has done some groundbreaking work in this field, including having run several landmark cases. Now, family law is often associated with things like parenting issues, property settlement and divorce. But it also deals with the validity of the marriage and the court's power concerning children's access to certain medical procedures. As the world has changed, so have the laws that govern us. You see this in medical-related legal issues, but also in attitudes to human difference or diversity. And today's episode is talking to both of these spaces. In the last 30 years, our laws and their application affecting people who experience difference or diversity in their sexual formation and or gender expression have been tested and refined. And that's the focus for today, the shifting sands of these laws, with someone who has represented people and appeared in landmark cases in this field. It gives me great pleasure to welcome a local practitioner, recently retired, family lawyer, Rachel Wallbank, to the podcast. Rachel, welcome. Thank you, Catherine. So let's talk about these landmark cases, and one in particular, I, I guess, that you've been involved in. But just to lay the groundwork, I know you have a personal connection to this area of law. How did you find yourself working in this space? Well, I graduated from law from the University of New South Wales and went through the College of Law and then started working at Fred A. and John F. Newnham, a very respected family law practice in Sydney. And I was working there before I went to the College of Law. So to an extent, I did a bit of the old-fashioned kind of uh, apprenticeship in law, which I think was very helpful. I worked my way up the totem pole at that practice to become an associate, but ultimately, because I was aware, I was also from childhood, I was aware I'd been born and assigned to the male sex, but I experienced myself as female from about the age of five or six, which is house and garden for people who experience what's called transsexualism. The language is a minefield in this area. When I've been presenting in Australia and overseas and writing papers, I tend to want to bring things back to diversity in sexual formation and gender expression rather than using terms that have become politicised like transsexual, trans, intersex. And then there's the medical diagnosis under the DSM-5, which is gender dysphoria. The only thing that the medical practitioners who are diagnosing children and adults with a difference in sexual formation, for example, such as transsexualism, uh, they're the only thing that those doctors can hang their hats on in terms of diagnostic criteria and the provision of medical treatment. In the DSM-5, they attempt to go out of their way to say that gender dysphoria is not a mental health condition, it's a distress arising from a series of circumstances where basically a person identifies and experiences themselves to be a sex different to that to which they were assigned at birth based upon and the assignment at birth is based upon a fairly casual examination of the external genitalia. And that's it. So huge challenges in terminology and medical diagnostic issues. When I started experiencing difference as a child, 
no one, me included, knew anything about this. About seven or eight years of age, I think the family knew something was going on, but my father found me dressed in my sister's clothes and asked me what was going on. And I, I had a very loving relationship with my father and I could trust him. And I was very fortunate because a lot of people like me never did and it got brutalised as a result of owning their stuff and being true to themselves. But I, t- I just simply said to him, Dad, I'm really a girl. So there was some news. This is a World War II guy. We're talking about 1950s, 60s, early 60s. And I was shipped off, which was pretty advanced stuff for those times. I was shipped off to a child psychiatrist who I always remember was somewhere near Luna Park because I remember Luna Park driving around those streets with my father. And he did shadow diagrams on me and we were through the different tests he had. But I knew the game was up when I saw the distress that my family, my particularly my father and mother, went through because of me simply saying what was going on for me. I knew what was happening and so I played the game. By the time I got to the psychiatrist, I had a pretty good idea what answers were required to get me out from under this problem I was in. And he was able to tell my parents that there was no problem at all that I was merely an intelligent, precocious child who was prone to fantasies, right? So wind the clock forward to school, a high school captain of the Fords in the second 15 at St. Pat Strathfield. I'm going to be such a, I'm going to be the kind of man I would like to know, right? You know, scouts, you name it, sailing and uh, everything I could possibly do. And so, but I'm gathering, I'm living the life in secret. I've got a a female existence and it's in plastic bags it's in garbage bags and things don't last very well or long in garbage bags and you work Christmas holidays and you sneakily buy some clothes at, at Vinnie's or somewhere else and then they don't last very long in plastic bags and and you had to hide them places under railway bridges I had a completely secret life with some cosmetics as well and uh, my mother was sick with a number of things and every so often she'd go into hospital and to my great shame, they were periods when I had the house to myself after school and Rachel was able to thrive. Down the years, an arts degree, a law degree, I am married. I have three beautiful children. I told my then wife before we married that, uh, that I really, I was really female inside as because there was no science or discussion about it then. And we both thought, well, you know, it's so... We just thought, oh, well, that must be other people like that. And, you know, I was working with it okay. Starting to drink, and I used alcohol to self-medicate it. But I could hold it very well, and I generally, even at night reading, I'd be drinking, and it'd all be okay. It was only towards the end of my drinking, by about 1991, that I started to humiliate myself from time to time. But I generally kept things pretty private. But anyway, arts degree, law degree, a lovely house overlooking the water at Peakhurst, uh, Lime Kiln Bay, following the Harvey Norman Road to Happiness, working in my own practice at Paris Park near Parramatta. I was doing very well. And what sort of practice was it? Well, I started off just doing anything. So you weren't in family law or? No, I, I wasn't. I, I, John was kind enough to let, to let me take a few clients with me who wanted to go. And, and then my cousin was an accountant and referred some people to me. So I did, I did anything that came along. 
but but gradually clients specialize you. The funny thing is you there aren't many people who can carve a course and say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. The clients come back in certain areas. That was family law and and wills and estates to an extent. Though I'd done a corporate litigation and trusts and I'd I'd had experience in a wide range of things. Uh, by about nineteen ninety two, I'm about thirty six and I can no longer keep my act together. And how old were your kids? My youngest was about seven. So spread from seven to twelve. And so I, I'd also read that children were better off going through uh, parent transitioning. I'd read some Canadian research if they were younger rather than older. Uh-huh. Uh, and the teenage years were the worst for them because they were questioning their own identity and, and kids are cruel or can be. But in the end, I didn't choose really. The time I had a breakdown, I had to do something about it. And so I got sober. I realized I couldn't keep drinking. The psychiatrists I've been going to about the transsexualism stuff, he basically said to me, you haven't got a chance unless you stop drinking, you know? So let's this wasn't the psychiatrist from way back when your father first talked No, no, no. This is, not, this is another one in Sydney who was an expert in, in dealing with people who experienced transsexualism. His name was Corny Greenway. I liked him because he had a dog who sat with him, but he was honest with me. And he said, you know, you meet all the criteria, but I'm not going to approve you because you don't have a chance unless you stop drinking. Uh, I got sober in late 92. And at 18 months sober, I realized I wasn't going to stay sober uh, unless I was honest with myself and everything else about me. Because I think there's another thing that's uh, another phenomenon that's um, little understood is alcoholism and, and addiction. And one of the ways you, you can recover is to remove the need to escape. Uh, one of the addictive things about a drug like alcohol, it works really, really well for a certain 10% of the population. It's like rocket fuel, is that it, it helps you deal with the unacceptable. Uh, I was a much more social person when I was drinking. Now I can't put up with a lot of people. But anyway, I knew one of the big reasons why I was escaping was was because I was self-destructing from the inside out, not being able to be my female self. And and how did what you were going through at this time and battling with alcoholism and dealing with your transsexualism, how did that all come together in your legal practice? I started doing voluntary work at a place called the Gender Centre. Uh-huh. I started speaking there. I started writing some papers. Once I... Once I got sober and then I transitioned, let me tell you, transitioning doesn't do a lot for your legal practice, but I, I, I was crawling along financially and with the spare time I had, I was, you know, I wasn't seeing my children very much. It was very, very difficult. But in those days, people saw it as a terrible embarrassment and mum had died, but dad was seeing it in, in the first, I knew he still loved me, but he saw it as somehow something in his biology that was wrong. It's still the fear of difference that pervades get young people getting treatment. It's the reason why the today the family court ha- it took until uh, the the re Kelvin decision uh, in in two thousand and seventeen to agree that children could get phase one and phase two treatment for transsexualism in adolescence, mm. provided the doctors approved it and provided the family approved it, and if everyone approved it, the child wanted it. The doctors approved it, the family approved it, the court didn't have to authorise it. That concludes part one of my conversation with Rachel Warbank. If you're listening to this as it's released, part two will be out tomorrow. 
And in that episode, we continue this conversation into the area of children's specialist medical procedures. Big thanks to Rachel Warbank, Accredited Specialist in Family Law, for taking the time to share her groundbreaking work with us on this episode of Law Matters. I'm Catherine Henry, Principal at Catherine Henry Lawyers, and if you'd like to find out more about how my team can help you or your loved ones navigate some of the more non-traditional areas of family law, I'd encourage you to get in touch. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure you subscribe and why not leave a review? This podcast was produced by Pod and Pen Productions.